Part three of Chapter five of the Exploits of Brigadier Gerard by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. No doubt you have heard my name mentioned as being the beau ideal of a soldier, and that not only by friends and admirers like our fellow townsfolk, but also by old officers of the great wars who have shared the fortunes of those famous campaigns with me. Truth and modesty compel me to say, however, that this is not so. There are some gifts which I lack, very few, no doubt, but still, amid the vast armies of the Emperor, there may have been some who were free from those blemishes which stood between me and perfection. Of bravery I say nothing. Those who have seen me in the field are best fitted to speak about that. I have often heard the soldiers discussing round the campfires as to who was the bravest man in the Grand Army. Some said Murat, and some said La Salle, and some Ney. But for my own part, when they asked me, I merely shrugged my shoulders and smiled. It would have seemed mere conceit if I had answered that there was no man braver than Brigadier Gerard. At the same time, facts are facts, and a man knows best what his feelings are. But there are other gifts beside bravery which are necessary for a soldier, and one of them is that he should be a light sleeper. Now, from my boyhood onwards, I have been hard to wake, and it was this which brought me to ruin upon that night. It may have been about two o'clock in the morning that I was suddenly conscious of a feeling of suffocation. I tried to call out, but there was something which prevented me from uttering a sound. I struggled to rise, but I could only flounder like a hamstrung horse. I was strapped at the ankles, strapped at the knees, and strapped again at the wrists. Only my eyes were free to move, and there, at the foot of my couch, by the light of a Portuguese lamp, whom should I see but the abbot and the innkeeper? The latter's heavy white face had appeared to me, when I looked upon it the evening before, to express nothing but stupidity and terror. Now, on the contrary, every feature bespoke brutality and ferocity. Never have I seen a more dreadful-looking villain. In his hand he held a long, dull-coloured knife. The abbot, on the other hand, was as polished and as dignified as ever. His capuchin gown had been thrown open, however, and I saw beneath it a black frogged coat, such as I have seen among the English officers. As our eyes met, he leaned over the wooden end of the bed and laughed silently until it creaked again. You will, I am sure, excuse my mirth, my dear Colonel Gerard, said he. The fact is that the expression upon your face when you grasped the situation was just a little funny. I have no doubt that you are an excellent soldier, but I hardly think that you are fit to measure wits with the Marshal Millefleur, as your fellows have been good enough to call me. You appear to have given me credit for singularly little intelligence, which argues, if I may be allowed to say so, a want of acuteness upon your own part. Indeed, with the single exception of my thick-headed compatriot, the British Dragoon, I have never met anyone who was less competent to carry out such a mission. You can imagine how I felt and how I looked as I listened to this insolent harangue, which was all delivered in that flowery and condescending manner which had gained this rascal his nickname. I could say nothing, but they must have read my threat in my eyes, for the fellow who had played the part of the innkeeper whispered something to his companion. "'No, no, my dear Chenier, he will be infinitely more valuable alive,' said he. "'By the way, Colonel, 
it is just as well that you are a sound sleeper, for my friend here, who is a little rough in his ways, would certainly have cut your throat if you had raised any alarm. I should recommend you to keep in his good graces, for Sergeant Chenier, late of the 7th Imperial Light Infantry, is a much more dangerous person than Captain Alexis Morgan of His Majesty's Foot Guards. Chenier grinned and shook his knife at me, while I tried to look the loathing which I felt at the thought that a soldier of the Emperor could fall so low. "'It may amuse you to know,' said the Marshal, in that soft, suave voice of his, "'that both your expeditions were watched from the time that you left your respective camps. I think that you will allow that Chenier and I played our parts with some subtlety. We had made every arrangement for your reception at the Abbey,' though we had hoped to receive the whole squadron instead of half. When the gates are secured behind them, our visitors will find themselves in a very charming little medieval quadrangle, with no possible exit, commanded by musketry fire from a hundred windows. They may choose to be shot down, or they may choose to surrender. Between ourselves I have not the slightest doubt that they have been wise enough to do the latter, but since you are naturally interested in the matter, we thought that you would care to come with us, and to see for yourself. I think I can promise you that you will find your titled friend waiting for you at the Abbey, with a face as long as your own. The two villains began whispering together, debating, as far as I could hear, which was the best way of avoiding my vedettes. I will make sure that it is all clear upon the other side of the barn, said the Marshal at last. You will stay here, my good Chenier, and if the prisoner gives any trouble, you will know what to do. So we were left together, this murderous renegade and I, he sitting at the end of the bed, sharpening his knife upon his boot in the light of the single smoky little oil lamp. As to me, I only wonder now, as I look back upon it, that I did not go mad with vexation and self-reproach, as I lay helplessly upon the couch, unable to utter a word or move a finger, with the knowledge that my fifty gallant lads were so close to me, and yet with no means of letting them know the straits to which I was reduced. It was no new thing for me to be a prisoner, but to be taken by these renegades, and to be led into their abbey in the midst of their jeers, befooled and outwitted by their insolent leaders. That was indeed more than I could endure. The knife of the butcher beside me would cut less deeply than that. I twitched softly at my wrists, and then at my ankles, but whichever of the two had secured me was no bungler at his work. I could not move either of them an inch. Then I tried to work the handkerchief down over my mouth, but the ruffian beside me raised his knife with such a threatening snarl that I had to desist. I was lying still looking at his bull-neck, and wondering whether it would ever be my good fortune to fit it for a cravat, when I heard returning steps coming down the inn passage and up the stair. What word would the villain bring back? If he found it impossible to kidnap me, he would probably murder me where I lay. For my own part I was indifferent which it might be, and I looked at the doorway with a contempt and defiance which I longed to put into my words but you can imagine my feelings, my dear friends, when, instead of the tall figure and dark, sneering face of the capuchin, my eyes fell upon the grey police and huge moustaches of my good little sub-officer Papillette. The French soldier of those days had seen too much to be ever taken by surprise, 
His eyes had hardly rested upon my bound figure and the sinister face beside me before he had seen how the matter lay. Sacred name of a dog, he growled, and out flashed his great sabre. Chenier sprang forward at him with his knife, and then, thinking better of it, he darted back and stabbed frantically at my heart. For my own part, I had hurled myself off the bed on the side opposite to him, and the blade grazed my side before ripping its way through blanket and sheet. An instant later I heard the thud of a heavy fall, and then, almost simultaneously, a second object struck the floor, something lighter but harder which rolled under the bed. I will not horrify you with details, my friends. Suffice it that Papillette was one of the strongest swordsmen in the regiment, and that his sabre was heavy and sharp. It left a red blotch upon my wrists and my ankles, as it cut the thongs which bound me. When I had thrown off my gag, the first use which I made of my lips was to kiss the sergeant's scarred cheeks. The next was to ask him if all was well with the command. Yes, they had had no alarms. Udan had just relieved him, and he had come to report. Had he seen the abbot? No, he had seen nothing of him. Then we must form a cordon and prevent his escape. I was hurrying out to give the orders, when I heard a slow and measured step enter the door below and come creaking up the stairs. Papillette understood it all in an instant. You are not to kill him, I whispered, and thrust him into the shadow on one side of the door. I crouched on the other. Up he came, up and up, and every footfall seemed to be upon my heart. The brown skirt of his gown was not over the threshold before we were both on him, like two wolves on a buck. Down we crashed, the three of us, he fighting like a tiger, and with such amazing strength that he might have broken away from the two of us. Thrice he got to his feet, and thrice we had him over again, until Papillette made him feel that there was a point to his sabre. He had sense enough then to know that the game was up, and to lie still, while I lashed him with the very cords which had been round my own lips. "'There has been a fresh deal, my fine fellow,' said I, "'and you will find that I have some of the trumps in my hand this time.' "'Luck always comes to the aid of a fool,' he answered. "'Perhaps it is as well, otherwise the world would fall too completely into the power of the astute. "'So you have killed Chenier, I see. "'He was an insubordinate dog, and always smelt abominably of garlic. "'Might I trouble you to lay me upon the bed?' The floor of these Portuguese tabernas is hardly a fitting couch for anyone who has prejudices in favour of cleanliness. I could not but admire the coolness of the man, and the way in which he preserved the same insolent air of condescension, in spite of this sudden turning of the tables. I dispatched Papillette to summon a guard, whilst I stood over our prisoner with my drawn sword, never taking my eye off him for an instant for I must confess that I had conceived a great respect for his audacity and resource. I trust, said he, that your men will treat me in a becoming manner. You will get your deserts, you may depend upon that. I ask nothing more. You may not be aware of my exalted birth, but I am so placed that I cannot name my father without treason, nor my mother without a scandal. I cannot claim royal honours but these things are so much more graceful when they are conceded without a claim. The thongs are cutting my skin. Might I beg you to loosen them? You do not give me credit for much intelligence, I remarked, repeating his own words. Touché, he cried, like a pinked fencer. But here come your men, so it matters little whether you loosen them or not. 
I ordered the gown to be stripped from him and placed him under a strong guard. Then, as morning was already breaking, I had to consider what my next step was to be. The poor Bart and his Englishman had fallen victims to the deep scheme which might, had we adopted all the crafty suggestions of our adviser, have ended in the capture of the whole instead of the half of our force. I must extricate them if it were still possible. Then there was the old lady, the Countess of La Ronda, to be thought of. As to the abbey, since his garrison was on the alert, it was hopeless to think of capturing that. All turned now upon the value which they placed upon their leader. The game depended upon my playing that one card. I will tell you how boldly and how skilfully I played it. It was hardly light before my bugler blew the assembly, and out we trotted on to the plain. My prisoner was placed on horseback in the very centre of the troops. It chanced that there was a large tree just out of musket shot from the main gate of the abbey, and under this we halted. Had they opened the great doors in order to attack us, I should have charged home upon them. But, as I had expected, they stood upon the defensive, lining the long wall, and pouring down a torrent of hootings and taunts and derisive laughter upon us. A few fired their muskets, but finding that we were out of reach, they soon ceased to waste their powder. It was the strangest sight to see that mixture of uniforms, French, English, and Portuguese, cavalry, infantry, and artillery, all wagging their heads and shaking their fists at us. My word, their hubbub soon died away when we opened our ranks and showed whom we had got in the midst of us. There was silence for a few seconds, and then such a howl of rage and grief. I could see some of them dancing like madmen upon the wall. He must have been a singular person, this prisoner of ours, to have gained the affection of such a gang. I had brought a rope from the inn, and we slung it over the lower bough of the tree. "'You will permit me, monsieur, to undo your collar,' said Papillette with mock politeness. "'If your hands are perfectly clean,' answered our prisoner, and set the whole half-squadron laughing. There was another yell from the wall, followed by a profound hush, as the noose was tightened around Marshal Millefleur's neck. Then came a shriek from a bugle, the abbey gates flew open, and three men rushed out waving white cloths in their hands. Ah, how my heart bounded with joy at the sight of them! And yet I would not advance an inch to meet them, so that all the eagerness might seem to be upon their side. I allowed my trumpeter, however, to wave a handkerchief in reply, upon which the three envoys came running towards us. The marshal, still pinioned, and with the rope round his neck, sat his horse with a half-smile, as one who is slightly bored and yet strives out of courtesy not to show it. If I were in such a situation I could not wish to carry myself better, and surely I can say no more than that. They were a singular trio, these ambassadors. The one was a Portuguese casadori in his dark uniform, the second a French chasseur in the lightest green, and the third a big English artilleryman in blue and gold. They saluted all three, and the Frenchman did the talking. "'We have thirty-seven English dragoons in our hands,' said he. "'We give you our most solemn oath that they shall all hang from the abbey wall within five minutes of the death of our marshal.' Thirty-seven, I cried, "'you have fifty-one. Fourteen were cut down before they could be secured.' "'And the officer?' "'He would not surrender his sword, save with his life. "'It was not our fault.' We would have saved him if we could. 
Alas, for my poor Bart! I had met him but twice, and yet he was a man very much after my heart. I have always had a regard for the English, for the sake of that one friend. A braver man and a worse swordsman I have never met. I did not, as you may think, take these rascals' word for anything. Papiette was dispatched with one of them, and returned to say that it was too true. I had now to think of the living. You will release the thirty-seven dragoons if I free your leader? We will give you ten of them. Up with him, I cried. Twenty, shouted the chasseur. No more words, said I. Pull on the rope. All of them, cried the envoy, as the cord tightened round the marshal's neck. With horses and arms? They could see that I was not a man to jest with. All complete, said the chasseur sulkily. And the Countess of La Ronda as well, said I. But here I met with firmer opposition. No threats of mine could induce them to give up the Countess. We tightened the cord, we moved the horse, we did all but leave the marshal suspended. If once I broke his neck the dragoons were dead men, it was as precious to me as to them. Allow me to remark, said the marshal blandly, that you are exposing me to a risk of a quincy. Do you not think, since there is a difference of opinion on this point, that it would be an excellent idea to consult the lady herself? We would neither of us, I am sure, wish to override her own inclinations. Nothing could be more satisfactory. You can imagine how quickly I grasped at so simple a solution. In ten minutes she was before us, a most stately dame, with her grey curls peeping out from under her mantilla. Her face was as yellow as though it reflected the countless doubloons of her treasury. This gentleman, said the marshal, is exceedingly anxious to convey you to a place where you will never see us more. It is for you to decide whether you would wish to go with him, or whether you prefer to remain with me. She was at his horse's side in an instant. My own Alexis, she cried, nothing can ever part us. He looked at me with a sneer upon his handsome face. By the way, you made a small slip of the tongue, my dear Colonel, said he. Except by courtesy, no such person exists as the Dowager Countess of La Ronda. The lady whom I have the honour to present to you is my very dear wife, Mrs. Alexis Morgan, or, shall I say, Madame la Marechale Millefleur. It was at this moment that I came to the conclusion that I was dealing with the cleverest and also the most unscrupulous man whom I had ever met. As I looked upon this unfortunate old woman, my soul was filled with wonder and disgust. As for her, her eyes were raised to his face with such a look as a young recruit might give to the emperor. So be it, said I at last, give me the dragoons and let me go. They were brought out with their horses and weapons, and the rope was taken from the marshal's neck. Good-bye, my dear colonel, said he. I am afraid that you will have rather a lame account to give of your mission when you find your way back to Messina, though from all I hear he will probably be too busy to think of you. I am free to confess that you have extricated yourself from your difficulties with greater ability than I had given you credit for. I presume that there is nothing which I can do for you before you go? There is one thing, and that is to give fitting burial to this young officer and his men. I pledge my word to it. And there is one other. Name it. To give me five minutes in the open with a sword in your hand and a horse between your legs. Tut, tut, said he. 
I should either have to cut short your promising career, or else to bid adieu to my own bonny bride. It is unreasonable to ask such a request of a man in the first joys of matrimony. I gathered my horsemen together and wheeled them into column. Au revoir, I cried, shaking my sword at him. The next time you may not escape so easily. Au revoir, he answered. When you are weary of the emperor, you will always find a commission waiting for you in the service of the Marshal Millefleur. End of chapter 5